2: This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello, and welcome to Show Five Hundred and Six. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Tell you what's coming, dear. Sure. What a story, man. What a story. And why you talk? I'm just. You need a hook in a story, and this one just hooks straight away. It is in a green dress surrounded by Exploding Clowns by Robert Joshonek. And it was originally published in the Galaxy Edge magazine. We also got and this is a really special one as well, we've got Amy H. Sturgis who's looking back at genre history this, this month, and it's a special one. The little nuances, the little kind of weave threads weave between Middle Earth and Star Wars and everything like that. It was actually done for a like a talk. Amy went on to some sort of convention and it was it was set there. So we'll have a listen to that as well. Before all that, just for this is the final one. I'll do it like monthly after that, but just you know, I'll keep you on your tours there. This month or this week we had two hundred and sixty six. That's three more than last week. So a big thank you to everyone, the three of you who signed up to Patreon. Don't forget, this is this is what keeps it going, this is what funds the, the machine we didn't have any revenue from the ads last time and i'm knocking back two shows to two shows a month for far-fetched fables so doing that to happen here so please do support us. so the main fiction <laughs> like i say originally published in galaxy edge magazine Robert Jushonek is an award-winning author whose fiction, comics, essays and non-fiction have been published around the world. His stories have appeared in Galaxy Edge, Escape Pod, Fiction River. He has written Doctor 4, Doctor Who and Star Trek fiction and Batman and Justice Society comics for DC Comics. His young adult slipstream novel, My Favourite Band Does Not Exist, won the Forward National Literature Award and was named one of Booklist's top ten first novels for youth. He has also won an International Book Award, a Scribe Award for Best Original Novel, and the Grand Prize in Pocket Books' Strange New Worlds Contest. Hugo and Nebula Award winner Mike Rensick called him a towering talent. And like I say, this story, man, is just You know what I mean? The title, you'll get the title. You know what I mean? (laughs) When it starts to come into, into clarity. You see, that's why I'm not a writer. It took me ages to come up with that word. It is narrated by one Kyle Maddock. Kyle Maddock is the host of a podcast of Ice and Fire. The geeky award winning and longest running podcast dedicated to George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. He also hosts the Game of Thrones after show After Buzz TV and is a frequent guest on other YouTube TV shows podcasts and panels. Kyle is unabashed geek with a love of board games, comic books especially X-Men and Star Trek among other things. Outside of his passion geek life Kyle is an actor who you can see in such shows as How I Met Your Mother and Happy Endings and you can follow Kyle at Kyle Maddock Twitter and Kyle nails this nails this narration as well Kyle thank you so much so the Starship Sova is very proud to present
1: In a Green Dress Surrounded by Exploding Clowns by Robert Jashonek Heaving for breath, I spin in a circle looking for a way out, but I see the same thing in every direction. Nothing but clowns. Dozens of clowns. Every one of them laughs, giggles, or guffaws at the same time. They bobble their heads, slap huge clown shoes on the parking lot pavement, and toot horns. All face paint and bulbous red noses, and baggy costumes in all the wild colors of the rainbow. They look like they'd be right at home at a circus, or a carnival, or a kid's birthday party. Except for the malevolent sneers etched into every one of their faces, not to mention the jagged, shark-like teeth lining their red lipped maws. As the clowns close in, my heart hammers in my chest. I'm a big guy. I'll fight them, but I'm exhausted after what I've been through. The past two days of non-stop madness have wrecked me, I admit it, and I wasn't feeling up to snuff to begin with. The pain in my gut was bad at the start and has only been getting worse, plus which I'm wearing a bright green knee-length dress and spiked heels. Not exactly the ideal outfit for a 5'11", 225-pound guy to wear while fighting a mob of savage clowns. Back off! Even as I shouted over the crazed laughter, I see it does no good. The clowns are still moving toward me. Swallowing hard, I prepare to make my stand. I crouch and turn slowly arms extended from my sides. Suddenly, I hear a wild scream behind me. I whip around just in time to see a clown with a big plastic daisy on its pink derby hat charging toward me. As I stumble back a step, the unexpected happens. The charging clown gets to within six feet of me and explodes, blowing apart in a burst of orange flame. I throw up my arms to shield myself. Lumps of dead clown splatter all over me, smelling like burnt bacon. Then I hear another shriek and spin to see a second clown charging. Trying to dodge him, I trip on my spiked heels and go down hard. This time the clown gets closer, within five feet before exploding. And then I hear another scream, and another, and another. I hear three pairs of floppy clown shoes paddling toward me. I wonder how close this new batch will get before blowing up. I wonder if they'll get close enough to take me with them. And I wish to God that I'd never gotten on the life hacker radar in crowd life. Three days ago, I could not have imagined how things would turn out for me. I was busy just doing my job as an agent of Crowdlife Outcomes Enforcement, the COE. My last case, the one that changed my life, led me to a run-down tenement apartment on Skid Row. A family of five was living in this three-room dump, dressed in rags, immersed in squalor. Make that a family of five plus a screeching chimpanzee in a purple turban and glittering gold diaper. Look at this place said the man of the house, Mr. Byron Chellingham. There's been a mistake, I tell you. Sorry, sir, I said, looking around the dilapidated apartment. Crowd life has spoken. Like hell. Byron swatted at what was either a passing bug or a gnat cam, one of the multitude of tiny airborne camera bots zipping through modern humanity's environment at all times. NatCams constantly beamed video and audio signals to augmented reality devices like my contact lenses and oral implants, enabling them to enhance what I and others saw and heard. NatCams also streamed data back to the social network providers. Without them, CrowdLife, YapStream, and the like wouldn't have a window on the world. Calm down, Mr. Chillingham. I raised my voice, trying to snap him out of it doing my best to hide the fact that I felt sorry for him. You need to get a grip, sir. But someone game the system, don't you see? Byron flapped his arms like he was trying to take flight. His bright green eyes were bugged out, his wife-beater tank-top t-shirts soaked with sweat. We don't deserve this. As if to punctuate his comment, the diapered chimp screamed its lungs out on the far side of the room in the filthy makeshift kitchen. You sign the TOS. With practice flicks of my eyes, I played the controls of my AR contact lenses. The image of a terms-of-service agreement appeared in midair between us, visualized as a sheet of paper filled with print and adorned with Byron's signature at the bottom. Long ago, he had signed over his destiny to CrowdLife, the ultimate crowdsourcing social network, just like all the rest of us. A century after Facebook and company, social networks truly ran the world. Everyone's fate was in the hands of everyone else. People voted to determine each other's fates right down to the smallest detail. The system ran pretty well, truth be told. Hard work and kindness were often rewarded by majority vote. Cruelty and criminality were often punished the same way. People pretty much got what they deserved. Usually. Though I'd be lying if I said the outcomes always made sense or that everyone was always happy with their own personal outcome. I agreed to accept the will of the crowd, yes, snapped Byron. But that can't be what this is, Agent Grice. As he glared at me, brief notes appeared in mid-air around him, visible to my AR lenses. Social messages from the yap stream posted by the multitudes watching Byron's story unfold. Yes, it can be, texted 69bill69. The crowd says you suck, texted fart inspector. But what if he's for real, texted Susie q 4 you. Just then, Byron's wife, Sylvia, emerged from a doorway armed with a broken broom handle. Waving it at the chimp, she drove the animal back three screeching steps. Our likability index is sky high. She scrubbed dirty fingers through her willy-nilly birds' nests of tangled brown hair. We get millions of smiles on crowd life every day. Something swam past me. Nat cam or insect I couldn't tell and I swatted it away. ''You know that's not how this works, ma'am. Likeability doesn't always correlate with fate voting.'' ''Damn right,'' texted Booga, Booga 99. ''Forget smiles. I'd give them puke faces all the time,'' texted Fart Inspector. ''But I like them. Giving them 100 smiles right now, in fact,'' texted Know-It-All 3000. ''I'm telling you, something's wrong this time.'' Sylvia lunged with the broom handle, driving the chimp back further. ''We're too well-loved for the crowd to drop us this low.'' She jabbed the handle again, and the chimp whirled and darted through a doorway. As Sylvia raced after it, the animal screeches were joined by the screams of the Chillinghams' three young children. All that noise made my stomach churn, setting off the ongoing pain in my gut. Look, I turned to Byron. I get it. You don't like this outcome. You tell 'em, C O E boy. Texted Sweethawk Seven. Spoiled rich piece of crap. Texted Cow says moo. Being transformed from billionaire to pauper? Terrorized by a chimp in a diaper? (laughs) Byron laughed like he was ready to jump off a building. What makes you say that? These things have a way of working themselves out, I told him. If you play your cards right, the crowd could send you straight back to the top overnight. That's right, we could do that, texted Susie Q4U. I'll vote for him in a heartbeat, texted Great White. Me too, texted Expletive Deleted. I say vote him another monkey, texted Fart Inspector. But what if this isn't the will of the crowd? said Byron. What if a single embittered individual is behind all this? I scowled. A life hacker? I've heard of it happening before. As Byron said it, the screeching chimp barreled out of the kids' room and hurtled across the apartment. Trolls hacking the fate vote to get what they want. Fairy tales, I said. Crowd life's unhackable. I heard there's a guy who... Texted 69bill69. 69 69. Nothing's unhackable, you boob. Texted Fort Inspector. Hashtag lifehackers. No such thing, bitches. Texted Jabbawocky75. Will you at least look into it? Byron stepped forward and raised a hand as if to touch my arm. Then withdrew it. Please. His eyes practically throbbed with desperation. Behind him, his wife charged after the chimp, howling with rage. Because I don't know how much more of this I can take. That's what they all say, texted Cow Says Moo. Too true, that note from the app stream. I'd never met a grace faller who didn't say the same thing. Words to that effect, at least. And I'd never met one who said they deserved what the fate vote stuck them with. Tell him F off, wall, texted Fart Inspector. A loser, texted Hackenstein XXX. Still, something kept nagging at me. Even as my brain and the yap stream told me to turn my back on these people, my gut said something different. In all my years with the COE, I'd never seen a fall from grace so precipitous. Or bizarre. What if life hacking wasn't a fairy tale after all? As I stood there, thinking about it, someone knocked hard on the apartment door. Byron brushed past me and opened it wide. Oh boy, I can't wait to see this, texted Kanga Colt 101. Latest fate votes in. I just saw what's coming. Texted sinner hater. Holy f f Texted cow says moo. Mister Chillingham, a man in a white crowd life fate maker uniform looked in from the hallway. He didn't wait for Byron to answer before pushing a wheelbarrow loaded with snakes through the doorway. Special delivery, sir. The fate maker dumped the snakes in the middle of the floor, sending them squirming in all directions. O m g! Look at them all. Texted call me God. ''Dance, bitches, dance!'' texted Jabberwocky75. ''See what I mean?'' Byron stared at me. ''Do you really think I deserve all this? Why would the crowd vote to do something this insane?'' But the fate maker wasn't done yet. ''Bring in the next load!'' A second white-uniformed man rolled in a rusty gray steel drum on a dolly and set it down near the snakes. With help from the first man, he pushed the drum over, sending putrid brown sludge oozing over the floor. It was raw sewage. The smell was so strong it made me gag. Excuse me, Mr. Chillingham. The first Fate Maker held out a tablet computer and a stylus toward Byron. Would you put your John Hancock right there, sir? Sweet, texted Fort Inspector. Talk about adding insult to injury, texted Judy, Judy, Julie. Byron just glared at him. The Fate Maker cleared his throat. Just, uh, need you to sign for this, sir, please. Byron turned to me. I could hardly hear his next words over the chimps screeching as it swung fistfuls of snakes against the wall, bashing their heads in. "'Will you at least look into it?' I told him I would. After the Chillinghams, I went straight home and jacked into the Crowdlife backlot, the vast virtual workspace linking employees like me with Crowdlife's behind-the-scenes infrastructure. As interpreted by my AR contact lenses, the back lot looked like an enormous crystalline city sprawling over a sun-soaked plain. My point of view was high above it, gazing down from a gold-tinted sky. The view was uniquely private, free of all social network connections. I blinked hard, and a drop-down text menu of city sectors appeared in the upper right corner of my field of vision. Flicking my eyes, I chose the last option and began my approach— "'drifting down through streamers of clouds toward a tall tower. "'When I found the right office on the tower's 85th floor, I flew straight in. "'There were no walls or windows to block my way in this virtual environment. "'As I landed, a young woman looked up from inside a conical well of holographic computer screens, "'dozens of them flashing with rivers of data. "'Cage!' she perked up instantly when she saw me "'and tucked strands of glossy black hair behind her ears. "'She was beautiful.' and not just because it's how she chose to look in the back lot. What's the occasion? Just paying a visit to my favorite outcomes analyst. I couldn't help smiling when I said it. And let me just say you're looking lovelier than ever, Liz. Flatterer. Liz brushed a hand along the well in front of her, opening a gap, then got up from her chair and walked through it. But I like what I'm hearing. There's more, I shrugged. I'm looking for something. Liz grinned and moved closer. Aren't we all? I'm sure we can find it together. I wouldn't be so sure, I said. Do life hackers even exist? Liz looked at me like I was crazy. Life hackers? That's what you're looking for? The ever-present pain in my gut spiked, then receded. There's this family of gracefallers. They've been handed an unusually extreme outcome. The fire drained right out of Liz as she leaned back away from me. Crowdlife has spoken. They signed the TOS, didn't they? Yeah, but... I shook my head. This outcome, it's so extreme, it's insane. We're talking a billionaire reduced to poverty, forced to live on Skid Row with a crazed chimpanzee. Liz shrugged. It happens, Cage. Sometimes a crazy outcome goes viral and sweeps the fate vote. It gets crazier, I said. There's a wheelbarrow full of snakes and a drum of raw sewage dumped in the apartment. Liz sighed and turned away, heading back to her data well. Life hackers are a myth. Crowd life is unhackable. So I've heard. I followed her to the well. Could you do some digging anyway? Throwing herself down on her chair, she closed the gap in the well as if she were drawing a curtain across it. Let me see what I can do. While Liz dug deep on the data side of things, I punched out to take some personal time. I had to step away for an appointment I'd been dreading. Because as much as I wished it were otherwise, not everything was controlled by crowd life. As I sat in Dr. Duncan's office and waited to hear his verdict, yapstring posts popped up around him via my AR contacts. Praying for him so hard, texted Susie q 4 you, Fingers and toes all crossed, texted Judy Judy Julie. I can't stand the suspense, texted Touchy Feely 50. I read a few, but they were coming thick and fast. Moments like this brought the rubberneckers out in force. Mr. Grice, said Dr. Duncan. I'm afraid the news isn't good. His eyes were locked on the tablet computer in his hands. Not good at all. Sorry to hear that. I sat back in my chair. Gene therapy has failed to prevent additional metastatic activity, said Dr. Duncan. Future remission of your cancer is unlikely. Right. I nodded. Okay, then. Poor son of a bitch, texted Dog's breakfast. I swear I'm going to cry. Texted Touchy Feely fifty. OMG texted Sweethawk seven. What this means, said doctor Duncan, is a dramatically reduced life expectancy. I cleared my throat. How much time do I have left? Based on your latest test results, I'd say not much. Dr. Duncan looked up from his tablet. Two months minimum. Four at the outside. Uh, I understand. Swallowing hard, I tried to ignore the swarm of pop-ups filling the AR field all around Dr. Duncan. I am crying so hard right now, texted SweetHawk7. Poor guy's got no one, does he? Texted Presto Kid. Not since we voted for his wife to divorce him, texted Fort Inspector. Now it's possible, said Dr. Duncan, that we might prolong your life a bit with targeted nanotherapy. Millions of guided nanomex would deliver microburst neochemotherapy to cancerous sites. He paused. Though, as you know, that brings with it certain undesirable side effects. How much more time would that buy me? One to two months, said doctor Duncan. Do it texted zipper breaker thirty three. Take the nano man. Take the nano texted Tina Tastic. Don't be stupid, man. Texted Cow says Moo two. Closing my eyes, I shut out the tide of yapstring posts. So in a best-case scenario, I've got six months left. Yes, said Dr. Duncan. So what do you want to do? I told him I needed to think about it, and then I left. I decided to take the rest of the day off and headed straight for my favorite bar, where I ordered up the hard stuff as soon as I walked in the door. As I sat and drank, natcams, or gnats, buzzed around me, drawing the occasional swat. The appstring post popped up around me, too, telling me to do one thing or another. Then the message I'd been expecting arrived. The announcement of a crowd-life-wide fate vote to decide if I should have nanotherapy. Just then, another message got my attention. An incoming call. Flicking my eyes over the contact lens controls, I answered it. Instantly, the appearance of my surroundings shifted, reshaped by the AR lenses to look like the interior of Liz's office in the back lot. Hey, Cage. Her voice was clear in my head, beamed in through the oral implants behind my ears. Her image was right in front of me, seated as always within the holographic control well. You owe me a steak dinner, hun, plus top-shelf cocktails. Oh yeah? I straightened on my barstool. I thought your whole life hacker theory was pure baloney, said Liz. But then I analyzed recent protests among gracefallers and noticed a pattern. Seems there have been other cases of inexplicably insane outcomes in crowd life lately. How many? Fifty-seven worldwide over the past two weeks, said Liz. I whistled softly. Any connection between the victims? None. Liz ran her fingers over the glowing controls in the well. But I did turn up a link between the fate votes that led to their outcomes. She tapped a finger on one of the screens in the well. What I found is an elaborate system of vote trading conducted by an army of kamikaze AI proxy drones. The proxy drones commandeer crowdlife lobbyists, AIs dispatched by system users to convince other users to vote certain ways. The proxies use the lobbyists to assemble blocks of carefully aligned votes, and then, boom, they trigger a chain reaction of fate votes, setting off a web of outcomes. Then, the drones self-destruct, continued Liz. The only traces they leave are the recorded movements of the enslaved lobbyists, which are buried under layers of obscure vote trades. I shook my head in amazement. Who could be capable of implementing a strategy that sophisticated? Someone who doesn't want to be found, said Liz. But I found him anyway, she pointed at the name on the screen facing me. Data Worm Inc. I felt a jab of pain in my gut and winced. Got a physical address for this outfit? Within the hour, I was standing in front of a door in an uptown apartment building, number 23. Gut aching, I took a deep breath and raised my fist to knock. At least I wasn't distracted by any YapStream pop-ups. As a COE agent, I was able to block YapStream during moments of imminent danger. As I knocked on the door with my left hand, I kept my right wrapped around the grip and trigger of my gun. No one answered my knock. I leaned closer, but could hear nothing from the other side of the door. Crowdlife Outcomes Enforcement, I shouted. Open up! We need to ask you a few questions. Next time, I knocked with the butt of the gun. Again. There was no reply. Reaching down, I tried the doorknob, and was surprised when it turned in my hand. Pushing the door open, I stepped over the threshold. Sweat trickled down my back as I peered into the darkness, keeping my gun raised in case of attack. As I took another step forward, a holographic panel leaped to life in front of me, an online screen as tall as I was and twice as wide, Blinking at the sudden flare of light, I saw the familiar orange and green home page of Crowdlife zoom out of the center and fill the screen from edge to edge. Gut burning, I tried to walk around the screen for a closer look at the rest of the room, but the image of the screen stayed in front of me no matter which way I turned. Suddenly, the screen changed from the Crowdlife homepage to the familiar box and column layout of a fate vote in progress. The question being voted on appeared at the top of the screen in bold, black letters. Should Agent Grice hop on his left or right foot while battling the three killers walking down the hall? The tally was in the hundreds of millions for either option, and the leader was right foot, with 67% of the vote. I spun to face the doorway with my gun at the ready, and the screen stayed square in front of me. I heard three sets of footsteps in the hall not far away, but it was hard to focus with the fate vote tally flashing in my face. Just then the numbers stopped changing and the winning choice turned bright red and expanded to five times its original size. Right foot had won by a landslide. An audio message played in my oral implants. Agent Grice must now comply with the outcome of this fate vote according to the crowd life terms of service that he signed on October 21st, 2192. The screen finally dissolved, just as a tall man dressed in a red uniform pushed through the doorway, brandishing a rifle. Without hesitation, I fired my pistol, throwing two shots into the intruder's forehead. The impact spun him to the floor with a heavy thud, clearing a path for the next guy to push through. I was getting ready to fire again when the CrowdLife screen reappeared smack in front of me with a familiar message Agent Grice must now comply with the outcome of this fate vote according to the CrowdLife Terms of Service that he signed on October 21st, 2192. Damn it! I gave in and hopped on my right foot, and the screen vanished. With a clear shot at the bad guy, I let loose three slugs, one to the forehead, one to the throat, one to the chest, in quick succession. As soon as the second shooter dropped, number three barged in and started firing. Taking aim while hopping wasn't easy, but I managed to tag him in the temple and shoulder, dropping him beside the other two attackers. With all three down, I stopped hopping and bolted into the hallway, looking one way and then another. I saw no additional intruders. But a heartbeat later, the crowd-life screen leaped up in front of me without warning, displaying the tabulation of another fate vote in progress. This time, the crowd was voting on a new question. Agent Grice, off-limits or open season? So far, there were zero votes in favor of me being off-limits. Heart bashing my ribs like a boxer's fist, I charged down the hall. The whole time, the crowd-life screen stayed in front of me, making it tough to see where I was going. Just as I reached the elevator, it dinged, and the crowdlife screen hopped aside. The doors sprang open, revealing a pack of howling maniacs wearing hockey goalie masks and brandishing machetes. The screen slid back in front of me, revealing the fate vote results. It came as no surprise that the winner was open season. The crowd-life screen vanished. Bolting past the elevator, I ran for the stairs. Every step of the way, the howls and footfalls of the machete-bearing maniacs were close behind. Throwing open the door, I barreled down two flights of stairs like my feet were on fire. When I got to the bottom, I crashed through the exit door without slowing down, and I found myself facing a mob armed with cream pies and fire hoses. As soon as I emerged from the stairwell, the cream pies came flying in my direction. One after another, they bombarded me, covering me with gooey cream. When that fusillade stopped, I whipped enough goop from my eyes to see that the crowd life screen had reappeared. This time, the text was a direct message to me. No more advanced warnings, Agent Grice. Our fate votes will be invisible to you from now on. You will pay the price for sticking your nose in our business. As soon as the screen blinked out, the mob cut loose with the fire hoses. I was blasted back by what I thought at first were jets of water, but I quickly realized the liquid was something else. Something with a noxious smell I knew all too well. Gasoline. Pinned against the stairwell door by the force of the jets, I shut my eyes and mouth Gathering my strength, I staggered right, letting the current push me until I rounded the corner of the building. Then I charged down the street away from the mob. I ran as hard as I could into the night, praying no one would flick a lit cigarette in my direction. Drenched in gasoline, spattered with pie cream, I ran for blocks, winding my way through the heart of the city. When I finally thought I was clear, I ducked into an alley and threw myself against the wall, heaving for breath. I was in over my head this time, The only help I could turn to was Liz in the back lot. Without further delay, I flashed her an emergency ping. There wasn't time to traverse the virtual environment of the back lot in the usual way, soaring down into the crystalline city and alighting in her office. She responded immediately. Through my AR contacts, I saw her image pop into the alley, standing three feet away from me. Cage! She looked instantly worried. What happened? Lifehackers, I told her. They ambushed me at the data worm address. You look terrible! I barely got away. My stomach twisted and I doubled over, then sucked in my breath and straightened. They're spinning rogue fate votes sicking the crowd on me. They want me dead, Liz. She nodded grimly. I'm on it, Cage. I'll do what I can. I heard voices in the distance and looked at the mouth of the alley. I don't think we got much time for it either. I swatted at the ubiquitous swarm of tiny bugs swirling around me. They can track my feed from the gnat camps through crowd life. I'll do everything I can. Liz stopped working unseen controls and met my gaze with her warm brown eyes. Just try to hang on, Cage. Because I've got so much to live for. The cancer would take me in a matter of months anyway. I shouldn't care, should I? But I did. I'll do my best, Liz. Just then, the voices rushed up and people poured into the alley. They washed over me in an angry tide, snatching away my gun and hauling me off my feet. As they dragged me away, I heard Liz's voice over the frenzied roar, calling to me from the back lot. Hang on, Cage! Then she was gone, and I was on the way to whatever madness awaited in unknown quarters. The mob stripped me naked in the street, then wrapped me in Christmas paper and pelted me with eggs. When that was done, they stripped off the wrapping paper, rolled me in a red carpet and peed on me while singing cartoon theme songs from the 70s. My treatment went downhill from there. Each abuse, each outcome of crowd life fate vote engineered by the data worm life hackers was more bizarre than the last. They dragged me through an art museum in a little red wagon and smashed famous paintings over my head, one after another. When they were done with that, they shoved me into a koala costume, poured grease down my back and spun me in circles until I vomited. Next, they stuffed me into a knee-length green dress and spiked heels and made me bungee jump off the Crosstown Bridge. All the while, the pain in my gut intensified. By the time they plunked me on the dance floor in a nightclub and beat me with frozen legs of lamb to the tune of The Chicken Dance, I felt myself losing ground. I hadn't been at my best to begin with. I wasn't sure how much more insane torture I could take. Not that the mob ever seemed to run out of new ideas. They blindfolded me. "'threw me in a dumpster full of loaded diapers "'and let me dig my way out with one arm tied behind my back. "'They put on stork masks and pecked the hell out of me "'while reciting the preamble to the Constitution. "'They tried to force-feed me live tarantulas "'and crumpled up pages of old comic books. "'Then finally there was a break in the action. "'They led me into an empty school gymnasium and left me there. "'Heaving for breath, I stood at center court and looked around. "'The place was peaceful and dark.' lit only by the dim red exit signs over the doors. For a moment, I dared to hope that my ordeal was over. Maybe the life hackers were finally done with me. Maybe they figured I'd gotten the message. I wiped the blood off my face with the back of my arm, and wiped my arm on the front of the green dress. I was about to kick off the damn spiked heels and head for the nearest door, just in case I had a chance to get away. That's when the lights blazed to life, and the clowns rushed in. They poured through the doors and surrounded me, cutting off all escape routes. Laughing, howling, giggling, they closed in around me, jagged teeth glistening. Then, one at a time, they charged toward me and exploded. I dodged once, then twice, barely avoiding being blown to bits along with the clowns. The next time, three come at me at once. The three clowns charged toward me from three different directions, shrieking like berserk vikings. As beat as I am, I can't imagine that one of them won't get me. Maybe I'll be better off that way, going out with a bang instead of fading painfully as the cancer takes me. But something deep inside clicks into place and I refuse to give up. Maybe it's just that I'd rather go down fighting or maybe it's plain stubbornness. Maybe it's sheer anger after what I've been through. Does it even matter? Sucking in a deep breath between shattered teeth, I gather what strength I've got left, which isn't much, and leap into action. Just as the clowns are nearly upon me, I dart out of the way. They collide and explode with shuddering force, spraying clown bits in all directions. But no caged grice bits. Though the blast knocks me down hard, I'm still alive. But for how long? Even as I hurry to get back on my feet, I hear more floppy shoes smacking toward me. Looking around, I see three clowns. Four. Five, this time. Shrieking and charging in my direction all at once. Looking around frantically, I wonder what my next move should be. Running and dodging seems to be the only choice. If I try to fight the clowns hand-to-hand, I'm guessing they'll blow up on contact. Wait, maybe that's the key. On the floor a few feet away, I see the blown-off arm of one of the dead clowns. I bolt toward it, grab it up, and keep running, heading straight for the nearest of the five attackers. I haul the severed arm back like a baseball bat, gripping the wrist and hand and swing it hard at the clown's chest. As soon as the arm makes contact, the shrieking clown explodes. The blast knocks me off my feet, and I roll twice with the impact. When I come to a stop, I see another clown almost upon me with arms outstretched. Kicking off the shoes, I scoop one up and whip it at the clown with all my might. He explodes in mid-shriek, sending chunks in all directions. Some are big enough that they set off other clowns, which in turn trigger others, and so on. I keep my head down until the blasts subside. When I look up again, the ranks of the explosive clowns have thinned out noticeably. Maybe now I have a fighting chance. Grabbing the other shoe, I scramble to my feet and take a quick look around. From what I can see, a dozen clowns remain. The odds are much improved. Picking the spot where the fewest clowns remain, I get ready to make a run for it. Adrenaline burns through my bloodstream, setting my heart spinning like a dervish. The pain in my gut peaks and refuses to subside, but I'll push past it. Every muscle in my body tenses as I prepare to sprint. If I die trying to escape this surreal trap, so be it. At least I'll have given it everything I've got left. Brandishing the shoe, I start running. I expected the clowns to close ranks in my path, and they do, but they also take me by surprise. Wheels sprout from their floppy shoes, enabling them to move much faster than before. The clowns swoop toward me like angry bees, and I keep running. As I go, I realize this is likely the end for me, but it doesn't freak me out at all. I feel like I'm watching it from a distance, from outside my body, and all I can think is how this isn't the way I'd ever thought I'd die. If someone had told me even a year ago that this would be my death scene, I would have laughed in his face. Yet here I am running in a green dress, wielding a high-heeled shoe against a pack of clowns and roller shoes. Then, suddenly, the doors slam wide open all around the gym, men dressed in loincloths and bunny slippers barge in armed with blowguns, hollow tubes held up to their mouths, jungle weapons loaded and ready. They all fire the blowguns at once, sending a barrage of darts into the cavernous gym, but none of the darts come anywhere near me. It quickly becomes clear that the blowgunners are shooting at the clowns. Again and again, as the darts hit their floppy-shoed targets, the gym booms with thunderous explosions. All the clowns go up in short order, surrounding me with fiery blasts that make my ears ring. Clown bits rain down everywhere, splattering the floor and covering me with shards of bone and tissue. Somehow, I stay on my feet through the series of blasts. I'm shaking my head hard, trying to clear the ringing in my ears, when something zips toward me. Not a dart, thankfully. It's a crowd-life screen, as tall as I am and twice as wide. It zooms up from a pinpoint to full size in a heartbeat, displaying a message in big, bold letters. All current fate votes impacting Agent Cage Grace are hereby nullified in accordance with the mercy provision of the crowd-life terms of service. What the hell? It's too good to be true. The start of another twisted torture, perhaps? Or maybe it's just as advertised. As I read the message, the blowgunners turn and leave the doorways, and the doors don't close behind them. All the ways out are wide open, and apparently unguarded. Just then, Liz's image appears alongside the screen, grinning. All better now, she says. Sorry I'm late, but you wouldn't believe how long it takes to round up a tribe of blowgunners at this hour. Seeing her puts me instantly at ease. So, it's over? My body untenses and the spiked-heeled shoe falls from my grip. It's really over? Liz nods. I didn't think I could pull it off at first. The defensive bots and AI countermeasures were useless against the lifehackers. Everything we sent after them ended up compromised and turned back against us. But you still did it. I smile, broken teeth and all. You still saved me. I owe you big time. Actually, says Liz, you owe your cancer. I scowl at her. Wondering what the hell she's talking about. There's a mercy provision in the Crowdlife Terms of Service. Liz gestures at the Crowdlife screen beside her. A fate vote necessitated by terminal illness supersedes and nullifies all others. She points a finger at me. And it so happens there's just such a vote in progress for you, my friend. I have to think for a moment before it comes to me. Oh, right. In all the madness I forgot. The crowd was voting on whether I should undergo nanotherapy for my cancer. The treatment could buy me one to two months of life, accompanied by undesirable side effects. But the vote started hours ago. Why is it still in progress? There's a crowdlife provision for this. Liz nods. Typical crowdlifer. Sign your fate away without reading the TOS. She sighs loudly. The provision's meant to restore a person's dignity if they're dying. It gives them one last bit of control over their lives at the end. I frown. How? If the person's still subject to the will of the crowd on that fate vote's necessitated by terminal illness, how do they have any control? Because the one who's dying always gets the last vote. The deciding vote. That overrules all others. Liz walks up to me and places her phantom hand upon my shoulder. You get to cast the deciding vote. So that's why the vote is still in progress after all this time they're waiting for me to vote. Good thing you put it off when you did, Liz's voice softens as she stares into my eyes. Good thing it happened in the first place. Yeah, my smirk. Thank God for cancer. We laugh, and then we stand there for a moment in silence. The mob hasn't come back, and Yapstream remains offline. I haven't removed the imminent danger block since entering Dataworm's apartment. The only intrusion is the crowd-life screen, with the all-important fate vote announcement emblazoned across the top. Should Agent Cage Grice undergo nanotherapy to treat his cancer? Pain shoots through my belly and I wince. I haven't had much time to think about this, what with the life-hackers and exploding clowns and all. So? Liz looks at the screen, then back at me. What'll it be? Nanotherapy or no nanotherapy? I gaze at the results as they now stand. 93% of the vote in favor of nanotherapy, 7% against. It's a landslide. Should I take those results as a sign? Would a slightly longer, less pleasant life be preferable to a shorter one without so many side effects? It's all up to me. After a lifetime of putting my destiny in the hands of other people, I finally have the power to set my own course. Cancer gave me that much, at least. The one thing that could not be controlled by social networks has liberated me from them in the end. Maybe it's time to take that liberation to the limit. What's it going to be, Cage? Liz's brown eyes lock expectantly with mine. How are you going to vote on crowd life? I look once more at the screen with its question and results, the fulcrum upon which the rest of my life will turn. And then I grin. None of their business. I pop the AR contact lenses out of my eyes, and the crowd life screen disappears so does liz every vote's a secret ballot from here on out then i flick the contacts over my shoulder and wander off through the gym the remains of exploded clowns squishing between my bare toes
0: they say you can't judge a book by its cover at the folio society we don't agree Our
3: beautiful books are all hardback and come with a slipcase, illustrations, and gorgeous covers. At the Folio Society, we've something for everyone. From Pride and Prejudice, to Dune, Charles Darwin, to A Game of Thrones. If you love books, you'll love Folio, the perfect gift. Order now at foliosociety.com and get $10 off when you use the promo code PODCAST. Conditions apply.
2: There you go. You see, in a green dress surrounded by exploding clowns and with heels on. Hey, that's how I'd like to go out as well, mind you. (laughs) That's just fun. Robert, man, that was, no, I love that, man. I was hooting and hollering. Jeremy, for picking that story, well done. Thank you so much. And Kyle, like I say, you nailed it, man. Nailed that. All them different little text voices and everything to kind of play around with. Well done, honestly, amazing. So, it is our very own Amy H. Sturgis. And like I say, this is an extra special, long looking back at genre history as well. It was originally for a talk. Amy went off to, I'm going to say a retreat, but it wasn't like a more like a little mini little convention. You know, Middle Earth and Star Wars and the connections. Im's.
3: Hello, my friends. It is time for another look back into genre history. And I have something super special for you today. But before I get started, I do want to say happy October. It is my favorite month of the year. And that means that I'm having my 31 day countdown celebration of Halloween online. That's on my blog and my Tumblr and on Twitter and on my Goodreads author page. However you want to access it, I invite you to join me for my daily posts and you can reach all of those different media outlets there for me via my website at amyhsturgis.com. So if you love Halloween like I do, please join me for my countdown. And now what I would like to do is share a talk with you. I was just recently, just mere days ago, Given the honor of being one of the special scholar guests, one of two at a long-expected party for, which is a fantastic meeting of Tolkien folk from all over the United States, Canada, and multiple countries, they've Join together at the Shaker Village of Pleasant Hill in Harrodsburg, Kentucky, take over the entire village, turn it into the Shire, and make it a celebration worth remembering every time. And it was great fun to be back and great fun to give a particular talk to this audience And I wanted to share that special talk, which is new research from me, and it was the first time that I had presented said research, and now I would like to share that research with you. So I would like to present my special talk to you today. That talk was entitled The Jedi of Middle-Earth, and what I hope to convince you of is this. J.R.R. Tolkien has always been a presence in Star Wars. But recently, creators have actively, intentionally drawn ingredients from Tolkien's works to use in expanding and informing Star Wars storytelling. Or, to put it another way, without Tolkien, we might not have had Star Wars at all but we most certainly would not have the Star Wars that we have today. So let's see if I can make my case and convince you of that. But first, let me set the stage with some fun trivia to get you in the mood for the topic. Let me talk about some Star Wars actors who also played roles in adaptations of Tolkien. We can start with the only actor— who has starred in every single Star Wars film to date, Uh, beginning in 1977, Anthony Daniels as the voice and body of C-3PO. He, as I said, originated the character in 77. The next year, in Ralph Bakshi's animated adaptation of The Lord of the Rings, he voiced the character of Legolas. Skip forward from Episode 4, A New Hope, in 1977, to Episode 1, The Phantom Menace, in 1999, one Naboo fighter pilot was destined for bigger, better, and shorter things, as Richard Armitage would go on to be Thorne Oakenshield in Peter Jackson's The Hobbit trilogy from 2012 to 2014. Rebecca Jackson Mendoza starred as Queen Bria Organa of Alderaan in Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith, in 2005, adopting the young Leia. The next year, 2006, she originated the role of Galadriel in The Lord of the Rings musical, in its first, that is, its Toronto, incarnation. I saw that live. Amazing. Especially Mendoza's performance. Christopher Lee, we knew him as Saruman in Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy, 2001-2003, and as Count Dooku in Episode 2, Attack of the Clones, in 2002, and Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith, 2005. And lastly, but certainly not least, Andy Serkis. Was the motion capture Gollum in Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy and the first film of The Hobbit trilogy, An Unexpected Journey? And he is also currently Supreme Leader Snoke. We first saw him in Episode 7, The Force Awakens, in 2015, and we will see him again very soon in Episode 8, The Last Jedi, in December 2017. Now, on to the big ideas. I'd like to divide my argument into two sections. For the purposes of the first section, I'd like to stress the continuity across the board between Lucas-era Star Wars, 1977 to 2012, and Disney-era Star Wars, 2012 to the present day. First of all, it would probably help to answer the million-dollar question first. Did George Lucas... The daddy of Star Wars, read J.R.R. Tolkien. Let me back up and say that one of George Lucas's standard operating procedures when he was putting the first film together, the first Star Wars film together, was rough cutting placekeeper material into sections of the script and, for that matter, the edit of the film to remind him of what was inspiring him for that part before that part was finished. A good example of that is in the place of what would become the final trench sequence in the attack on the Death Star, he put in its place the attack on the dam sequence from the World War II film The Dam Busters to show exactly the kind of movement he wanted, of course, substituting later Star Wars fighters for airplanes. But that reminded him of what had inspired him for that section to begin with. Well, let's go to the third draft of the original Star Wars script. You can find this in several places, perhaps the most accessible, Chris Taylor's Salon.com article, Secrets of the Star Wars Drafts, inside George Lucas's amazing and very different early scripts. So, in this third draft of the script, Luke Skywalker is attacked by Tusken Raiders just before he meets Ben. They leave him handcuffed to a giant spinning wheel, and Kenobi approaches with a good morning. What do you mean good morning? Luke responds. Do you mean that it is a good morning for you? Or do you wish me a good morning? Although it is obvious I'm not having one. Or do you find that mornings in general are good? All of them at once? Replies Kenobi. Well, if that sounds familiar to you, that's because it's lifted almost exactly word for word from the first meeting of Gandalf and Bilbo Baggins in The Hobbit, J.R.R. Tolkien. So yes, I think we can safely say that George Lucas read Tolkien if in fact he was quoting The Hobbit as a placekeeper for his first meeting between Luke Skywalker and Ben Obi-Wan Kenobi. I think there's also a very compelling parallel to be made between what Tolkien thought he was doing in creating his Middle-earth works and what George Lucas thought he was doing in creating the Star Wars films. If we look at Tolkien's goal, uh, we could go to the 131st letter in Humphrey Carpenter's Collected Letters of Tolkien. That was from 1951, writing to Milton Waldman, and he wrote, I was from early days grieved by the poverty of my own beloved country. It had no stories of its own. Do not laugh, but once upon a time, my crest has long since fallen, I had a mind to make a body of more or less connected legend, ranging from the large and cosmogonic to the level of romantic fairy story, which I could dedicate simply to, to England, to my country, quote. Okay, so Tolkien wanted to create a mythology for England. What did Lucas want to do? Well, you may recall that... Bill Moyers did a documentary series on Joseph Campbell, the popular father of the concept of the monomyth, the hero's journey, the hero with a thousand faces. And Campbell called George Lucas his greatest student. And Bill Moyers turned his attention to the mythology of Star Wars. And in the titled mythology of Star Wars, Interview, June eighteenth, nineteen 1999, George Lucas said, Well, when I did Star Wars, I consciously set about to recreate myths and the classical mythological motifs, and I wanted to use those motifs to deal with issues that existed today. Bill Moyers said, You're creating a new myth. And George Lucas said, Well, and I'm telling an old myth in a new way. I'm just taking the core myth and I'm localizing it. As it turns out, I'm localizing it for the planet, but I guess I'm localizing it for the end of the millennium more than I am for any particular place. This is, again, part of the globalization of the world we live in, end quote. So if Tolkien wanted to create a mythology for England, Lucas wanted to create a mythology for the end of the 20th and the beginning of the 21st centuries. It's fitting, then, that when the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum put together its Star Wars exhibit, which ran from 97 to 99, they called it Star Wars, the Magic of Myth. It's probably also worth pointing out that the myths both creators built were in part made up of ingredients of texts that each man studied professionally. So, for example, we see echoes of... Beowulf, and Sir Orfeo, and Gawain and the Green Knight, and other texts in Tolkien's work. But Lucas professionally studied film, and so we see visual mythology echoed in his own work. For example, the westerns of John Ford, the samurai films of Akira Kurosawa, etc. Another parallel, allegory. Both Tolkien and Lucas were inspired by but not limited by history, and that means the warnings and the hope in the works of each remain evergreen. Tolkien did not like the idea of allegory. In fact, in one edition of The Fellowship of the Rings, he wrote an introduction and said... But I cordially dislike allegory in all its manifestations, and always have done so since I grew old and wary enough to detect its presence. I much prefer history, true or feigned, with its varied applicability to the thought and experience of readers. I think that many confuse applicability with allegory, but the one resides in the freedom of the reader, and the other in the purposed domination of the author." So what is he saying here? Tolkien? He is saying that he would prefer his work to be interpreted by readers and seen to be applicable in different times, in different ways. In other words, all Nazis might be orcs, but not all orcs are Nazis. So that when Nazis are defeated, we can't say, oh, good, we don't have to worry about orcs ever again, because no, more orcs will be coming the symbol that the orcs represent will be applicable again. Tolkien would admit on many occasions to being influenced by history. He couldn't write Mordor the way he wrote Mordor without having experienced war in the trenches in World War I. But he didn't want that to be just an allegory for World War I. Similarly, George Lucas saw bigger patterns. He saw things happening again and again. And he didn't want Star Wars to have just a one-to-one correspondence. So even though he thought when he originally created the notion of the emperor, he thought of the emperor as Richard Nixon because he was living through the Vietnam era. George Lucas was almost the director of Apocalypse Now. Vietnam was very much on his mind. But he didn't want Star Wars to be just a movie about Vietnam, for example. One of the patterns that he was most interested in was the idea that people, free people, would choose to give up their liberty and vote tyranny into office again and again. He later talked about this in the audio commentary for Episode 5, Attack of the Clones, the DVD, Uh, This problem wasn't just a problem of the 1970s. It's a problem he saw again and again. He said, the idea of democracy being given up and in many cases being given up in a time of crisis. You see it throughout history, whether it's Julius Caesar or Napoleon or Adolf Hitler. You see these democracies under a lot of pressure in a crisis situation who end up giving away a lot of the freedom they have and a lot of the checks and balances to somebody with a strong authority to help them get through the crisis, end quote. And that Fear was what he wanted to bring to the fore. He thought it would be applicable again and again, a warning about that kind of behavior. And one could argue it's very applicable today. Just because Nixon's gone, that doesn't mean the emperor's gone. Amidala's comment in Attack of the Clones, this is how liberty dies with thunderous applause, still something we should keep in mind. Another thing I want to talk about uh, parallels with the big themes of both the Middle Earth works and Star Wars. In that same letter I mentioned earlier, letter 131 from the Humphrey Carpenter collection of Tolkien's letters, Tolkien says, you asked for a brief sketch of my stuff that is connected with my imaginary world. Anyway, all this stuff is mainly concerned with the fall, mortality, and the machine. End quote. So let's break this down. Let's talk about the fall. Tolkien believed we live in a fallen world. This is part and parcel of his Christianity, his Catholicism. In letter 96 from that same collection, a 1944 letter to his son Christopher, he says, Certainly there was an Eden on this very unhappy earth. We all long for it, and we are constantly glimpsing it, our whole nature at its best and least corrupted, it's gentlest and most humane is still soaked with the sense of exile End quote. well how does that sense of exile translate into star wars i think it really really does first one of the key innovations of star wars storytelling is the used future aesthetic Think about the future in, say, 2001, A Space Odyssey. It's white. It's squeaky clean and shiny and bright, and it looks brand new and freshly buffed and polished, and the future is going to be so sleek, so cool. In fact, if you could go back to the 1950s aesthetic of what the future would look like, streamlined and shiny and beautiful. Now think of the Millennium Falcon. It's a hunk of junk, right? Right? Think of what we see in the opening sequences on Tatooine in the first Star Wars film. We see sand dunes and the skeleton of a huge creature. And then we see the Jawas taking damaged, broken down, recycled droids and trying to sell them to make just a living, just eke out some kind of existence that way. We see it even today in contemporary Star Wars storytelling, in The Force Awakens' Jakku, which is literally a graveyard of crashed and dead ships that scavengers are living off of. And in Rogue One's Jeddah, with its ruins and its repurposed catacombs and its toppled, crumbling monuments half-buried in sand. It looks like something directly out of The Lord of the Rings. Another way Star Wars deals with the issue of the fall is in character arcs. Star Wars is driven by the fall of great characters and our hope for their eventual redemption. The prequel trilogy really reframed the original trilogy so that it wasn't the adventures of Luke Skywalker, it was the fall and rise again, or redemption of Anakin Skywalker. And today uh, we are questioning what's going to happen with Kylo Ren, the fallen son of Han and Leia, the fallen student of Luke. Lastly, we also know this is a fallen world in both universes because things are twisted. We learn in Tolkien's legendarium that evil cannot create, it can only twist, which is why orcs aren't separate creations, they are twisted elves. Similarly, we are finding right now, we are in the middle of finding out right now, this is late breaking news from Star Wars comics, that the red Sith lightsabers come from kyber crystals that have been taken from Jedi lightsabers. And the kyber crystals have been bled until they turn red. And that's why the Sith have red lightsabers. They cannot create their own, they must twist what had once belonged to the Jedi, take it from its original color and bleed it red. So fallen worlds in both universes. As for the machine, I could go on and on about that all day. I think there's a strong comparison to be made in the themes of, for example, the scouring of the Shire when the hobbits come back to their home in The Lord of the Rings and rid the Shire of the more powerful, more technologically sophisticated evil of Saruman and the way the Ewoks successfully fight back the stormtroopers on their home in Return of the Jedi. But let me sum it up this way. Treebeard says of Saruman... In The Lord of the Rings, he has a mind of metal and wheels, and he does not care for growing things, except as far as they serve him for the moment. And now it is clear that he is a black traitor. Think of how, similarly, Obi-Wan says of Darth Vader, he's more machine now than man, twisted and evil in Return of the Jedi. There's even a kind of continuum in Star Wars. Lose a hand, get a prosthetic hand, well... You're clearly still human. You're clearly still a hero. That in-between point with Anakin Skywalker slash Darth Vader, that is really questionable. But on the far end of the spectrum is someone like General Grievous, who has given up willingly his organic body and become mostly mechanical, mostly non-organic, in order to make himself a more formidable instrument of war. Clearly, Evil. So we've talked about the fall, we've talked about the machine. The big one, the big theme that I think is a crossover is mortality or death. Tolkien puts a finer point on his key theme in a 1957 letter to Christopher and Faith Tolkien, letter 202. He says, quote, But I should say, if asked, the tale, that's Lord of the Rings. Is not really about power and dominion, that only sets the wheels going. It is about death and the desire for deathlessness. Quote. So, Tolkien's Middle Earth books, The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, and The Silmarillion, juxtapose the melancholy of the deathless elves and the vitality of the mortal hobbits, men, and dwarves, defending the notion that death is, in fact, a gift from the Creator and unceasing life, or what Tolkien calls serial longevity, is but a pale imitation of real deathlessness and immortal afterlife. Therefore, ancient Numenorians not only fail to understand and appreciate death, but they also seek to cheat it, add substantial peril to themselves and their realm, in Tolkien's work. Now, I think this, too, is at the heart of Star Wars. For example, As Obi-Wan says to Darth Vader in the very first film, Episode 4, A New Hope, if you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. Now, why can't Darth Vader imagine this? The Sith Enterprise is all about cheating death. You may recall that Darth Plagueis tried to unlock the secrets of immortality. We learned this from Palpatine in Episode 3, The Revenge of the Sith. He says, Darth Plagueis was a dark lord of the Sith, so powerful and so wise, he could use the force to influence the midichlorians to create life. He had such a knowledge of the dark side, he could even keep the ones he cared about from dying. Of course, aside here, (laughs) he couldn't keep the one he cared about the most, that was himself, from dying. So he fell short of his own goals. But As you may recall, Anakin's fall to the dark side was precipitated by his fear of losing his wife, Padme, to death, as he had lost his mother. So death, fear of death, the desire for deathlessness all caught up there in Anakin's psyche and then in the Sith Enterprise. The heroes of Star Wars time and again, like, for example, Frodo Baggins, selflessly give themselves up in the effort to save others. Obi-Wan Kenobi, Qui-Gon Jinn, Depa Billaba, K2SO and Chirrut Imwe and Bodhi Rook and Baze Malbus and Cassian Andor and Jin Erso of Rogue One, etc. There's also something particular in the long arc of Star Wars storytelling related to death. In Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith, in episodes of the Clone Wars TV series, we learn that... The Jedi most selfless, least attached to ego, those desiring not to use the Force as much as be used by the Force, may return again to instruct other would-be heroes. Therefore, Qui-Gon Jinn, the Jedi most attached to the living Force, who was at odds with the Jedi Council, the Jedi most willing to give up himself and be an empty vessel for the Force to use, He's the one who discovers the key to retaining his individuality in the Force after death. By sacrificing his life in the moment, he gains himself in eternity. That's how we get the blue, glowy Jedi ghost, right? And Qui-Gon Jinn goes on to teach Obi-Wan and teach Yoda. To me, this seems very resonant of Tolkien's distinction between serial longevity, just not dying, and true immortality, the good thing, because selflessly, sacrificially, Qui-Gon Jinn ends up having that immortal afterlife in a way none had before, and in a way that paves the path for our other heroes to retain themselves after death as well, to become more powerful than we could possibly imagine. Okay, so up to this point, I've been talking about Star Wars storytelling as a coherent, cohesive whole from 1977 to the present. Now I'd like to focus particularly on contemporary Star Wars, that is Disney-era Star Wars, this time period in which Kathleen Kennedy has become the head of Lucasfilm, and Star Wars storytelling has been overseen by the Lucasfilm Story Group. And canon has been reset to include all of the films, the two TV series, that is Clone Wars, and the current day Star Wars Rebels, books, comics, games, and web series that have come since the merger with Disney, so that is since 2012. All of those things then are canon. And I'd like to talk about this new Disney era Lucasfilm and the Star Wars that has come from it, because I'm going to argue here that Star Wars as it is today in this Disney era is Tolkienian intentionally. Okay, so let's see if I can convince you. To make my case about contemporary Star Wars storytelling, I want to give two general examples and two specific examples. Let's start with a general one. In a way that is new to Star Wars storytelling, today we see in Disney-era Star Wars the fact that artifacts have and or retain power. What do I mean? Well, Anakin Skywalker's lightsaber, most recently owned by Luke and seen with Luke's hand and not the rest of Luke, appears in Episode Seven, The Force Awakens. And calls out to Rey. And when it calls out to Rey, it echoes its own history. It brings forth what it has done, where it has been, what it has witnessed. It calls out to Rey in a renewed, chubby blade that was broken kind of way, to reference the Lord of the Rings. We also see Kylo Ren venerating Darth Vader's helmet, like some kind of holy relic that has power. We also see this theme about artifacts, objects, repeated in other recent Star Wars storytelling the 2015 Lando comic based on Lando Calrissian, has a Sith helmet on Palpatine shuttle managing to call out to and corrupt characters. In the Aftermath trilogy of novels by Chuck Wendig that came out in 2015 through 2017, we see a cult collecting Sith artifacts, presumably to use, presumably because they are powerful. This seems to be an intentional theme across the board, We see it most clearly in the current television series, Star Wars Rebels, which is currently in its last season. It backs up to events in Rogue One and Star Wars Episode IV, A New Hope. So we're just about getting to that timeline there. And it tells the story of a group of rebels who start out acting mostly independently against the Empire, but eventually become folded into the organized rebellion. If you love Star Wars storytelling, you owe it to yourself to watch this show. At the heart of the series is the story of Kanan Jarrus. He had been a Jedi Padawan when Order 66 wiped out all of the Jedi, including his master, Depa Billaba. He survived by denying his past and his Force sensitivity for a very long time, just keeping his head down. He's pulled back into the fight for good, and now he mentors a former street thief, an urchin, a young boy named Ezra Bridger, who is also Force-sensitive. And together they throw in their lot with the rebels. In the series, young, naive, well-intentioned, but super impulsive Ezra Bridger, not unlike Pippin, the fool of a toque you might know from The Lord of the Rings, is tempted by an artifact— Ezra is tempted by an artifact known as the Sith Holocron, not unlike Tolkien's Palantir. It represents access to knowledge, but also like the Palantir, it makes the user vulnerable. Like Pippin with the Palantir, Ezra is told that the Holocron is dangerous, he shouldn't touch it. And, like Pippin with the Palantir, Ezra can't help himself eventually he uses the the artifact to try to find the answers he wants, which are how to destroy the Sith. So he's got good intentions, as I say. But instead, he's slowly corrupted until his mentor finds out, stops him. Eventually, the holocron is destroyed. Okay, so having there be artifacts out there, like the Ring, like the Palantir, that can corrupt and influence people, this seems very Tolkienian to me. But you know what else seems very Tolkienian? Trees. And Star Wars storytelling now is all about the trees. Okay, what am I talking about? We first see a particular tree as sort of a visual aside. This is not the focus, by any means, of the episode. In the episode The Wrong Jedi, in the Clone Wars, back in March 2013, The Clone Wars, you may remember, filled in the gap of the Clone Wars period in between Episode 2, Attack of the Clones, and Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith. We see this ancient Force-sensitive tree that grows at the heart of the Jedi Temple on Coruscant, the, the big capital planet. The Jedi Temple there is this massive ziggurat shape. It is a school and a monastery for the Jedi Order. And here at the heart is this tree. Then we go on to learn in the Shattered Empire comic, which came out in 2015 as part of the Journey to the Force Awakens, that after the Clone Wars, Darth Sidious declared himself Emperor of the Galaxy. As we know, the temple was converted into the Imperial Palace. The tree was removed. But living fragments survived, kept in a secret Imperial base. So Shattered Empire, the comic... Tells us that after the events depicted in Episode 6, The Return of the Jedi, Luke Skywalker and a pilot he chose for the mission, Shara Bey, undertook a secret mission to recover those fragments of the Force sensitive tree. And they were successful. Luke kept one of the fragments. Now he gifted the other to Bey and her husband, Kes Dameron. The two retired from active service in order to settle down. They planted the Force-sensitive tree outside their home on Yavin 4, and their son, Poe Dameron—yes, that's Poe Dameron from the new trilogy of films—played under and on this Force-sensitive tree as a little boy. This idea of a tree representing the health of the people, the faith of the people, the future of the people, is— So entwined in Tolkien's legendarium, you have the two trees of Valinor, Telperion and Larlin, the silver tree and the gold that brought light to the land of the Valar in ancient times, destroyed by Melkor and Ungoliant. The Valar took the fruit and created the moon and the sun. The idea of transplanting a tree, the tree as a symbol of the world that is gone, or a world that people are trying to remember and and rekindle, reminds me very much of the White Tree of Gondor in The Lord of the Rings. There were four white trees, the third of which had rarely flowered until the line of the kings had failed, and therefore no fruit was produced. It was left standing after its death in Gondor until the king returns. And it's Aragorn, with Gandalf's help, who identifies the sapling, replaces the dead tree with the living one. We see the living one in Blossom, as if to say, the king has returned. So this comic, Shattered Empire, that takes place right after Return of the Jedi, makes me question, does Luke rescue this fragment of the Force-sensitive tree, the sapling, if you will, as a way to say the Jedi have returned? And what are we to make of things now? As for the speculation for this December's The Last Jedi, we do know from the trailers there is a ginormous tree on the island where Luke has exiled himself, where the first Jedi temple was founded. It looks like it could be a Force-sensitive tree. Is it living or is it dying or dead? Does that tree represent the first Jedi Temple? Was the fragment that Luke saved planted at the Jedi Temple he founded and eventually lost? We don't know, but it seems like the tree is going to be some sort of barometer, some sort of measure of the... Life or death of the Jedi Order, the health of the Jedi Order, how we are to understand the trajectory of the Jedi, and quite possibly of the galaxy as a whole. It's a very Tolkienian symbol. And now let me give you two specific examples. We are moving from Sturgis' speculation here to certainty, thanks in part to how forthcoming one Star Wars creator has been in talking about his influences— namely Dave Filoni, who was the supervising director of the Clone Wars TV series and the supervising director of the Rebels TV series until September 2016, when he accepted a promotion to oversee all of Lucasfilm animation projects. He is still involved with Rebels, and he is a dedicated Tolkien fanboy. And lest you think the TV series are off on their own, I should point out that characters from the TV series have appeared in films— novels, comics, etc., we're in a truly multimedia Star Wars moment where the Lucasfilm story group makes sure that there's cross-pollination, that storylines go back and forth and cross different media. The character of Sal Guerrera, for example, originated in the, the Clone Wars TV series, crossed over to Rogue One, where he was portrayed by Forrest Whitaker, is now in the Rebels television series, voiced by Forrest Whitaker and has appeared now in novels such as 2017's Rebel Rising and The Guardians of the Wills*, and elsewhere. Okay, let me give you two specific examples then. The first, characters who are above the fray, the balance. Let's talk about the Bindu who is a character who originated in the current television series Rebels, voiced magnificently, by the way, by the fourth Doctor, Tom Baker. So, the galaxy is headed toward war. The rebellion is growing in response to imperial rule. We are in the Star Wars Rebels moment about two years from the events depicted in Rogue One and Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. He first appears in and throughout the third season of Rebels, which ran from 2016 to 2017. Our protagonists are on the planet Adalon, and they encounter a creature. What kind of creature? They don't know. How old is it? They don't know. He seems part of the very landscape, like a rock formation. But it becomes clear that he's wise, powerful, and force-sensitive. When asked to join their side, he has no interest. He says, Jedi and Sith wield the Ashla and Bogan, the light and the dark. I am the one in the middle, the Bindu. By the way, these are really old terms. In the early drafts of the very first Star Wars film, George Lucas called the light side and the dark side, the Ashla and Bogan. And he called the Jedi, the Jedi Bindu. So these terms are being pulled back into canon from early, early drafts of the first film. Okay, so what does this mean? The Bindu is in the middle. Kanan Jarrus tells him of the powerful Sith holocron. Again, think of it like a cross between a Palantir and the Ring itself from Lord of the Rings. Extremely powerful, but also a temptation, a source of corruption. And the Bindu really isn't interested at all. Eventually, Kanan gives it to the Bindu for for safekeeping because it's clear that he isn't tempted by it. He's like... Well, if we think of Lord of the Rings, he's like Tom Bombadil and the ring. He may not have power over it, but similarly, it has no power over him. In the podcast Fangirls Going Rogue, episode number 44, interview with Dave Filoni, Filoni admits that he uses the Lord of the Rings Tom Bombadil as the inspiration for the bindu. As Mark Eldridge points out on 1138 in the essay, He Is, Bindu, Bombadil, and Balance, quote, Like Bindu, Bombadil is one of a kind. When asked who exactly Tom Bombadil is, Goldberry merely replies, he is. Bindu, similarly, is ancient, not a member of any species that we know, and visually appears almost a part of the planet Atalon itself. I was here long before you and will be long after, he tells Kanan. Also, as Eldritch says, In the world of Tolkien, Treebeard and the Ents, Guahir and the Eagles, and the shapeshifter Bjorn all represent something of the wild. None of these characters are true heroes or villains. They are not part of any heroic alliance, and they are not at the beck and call of our protagonists, end quote. Bindu is so much in the wild that he blends into the landscape to look like a natural rock outcropping. You don't see him unless he wants to be seen. Now, as much as the character Bindu owes to Tom Bombadil, he also owes a bit to Treebeard as well. In fact, there's a scene reminiscent of Peter Jackson's film in which Mary pleads with Treebeard to pick a side. Kanan does the same to Bindu. I should note, by the way, in one interview... Uh, Filoni got so caught up talking about how the Bindu came into being and his enthusiasm for him that he tripped up and called Bindu Treebeard. Now, Bindu's end is mysterious. He's hit from fire from Imperial Adat walkers and death troopers. And then he's found lying wounded on the ground and asked what he is. And he tells Grand Admiral Thrawn, uh, character who's been brought forward from the expanded universe, that he was beyond Thrawn's power to destroy. And when Thrawn disagrees with this, Bindu warns him that he, the Bindu, could see where Thrawn couldn't and could see Thrawn's ultimate defeat like many arms wrapped around him in a cold embrace. Thrawn tries to finish Bindu by shooting him, but Bindu vanishes The blast doesn't seem to touch him, and we hear his laugh, indicating that he's still around somewhere. The one in the middle, the one who just is. Very, very Tolkienian. And now let's talk about sacrifice and transformation, as embodied in the Star Wars character Ahsoka Tano. Who is she? In the Clone Wars TV series, which as I mentioned before, takes place in between Episode 2, Attack of the Clones, and Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith, filling in the gaps about the Clone Wars. Well, she was the child Padawan assigned to Anakin Skywalker. Why don't we see her in Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith? Well, that is explained. I'll get to that in just a second. First, during one key episode arc, known as the Mortis Arc in season three of The Clone Wars, Ahsoka dies. She is on a planet called Mortis, which may or may not be metaphorical. It's a dreamlike sequence. It's a virgins of the Force where there are three characters who seem to represent aspects of the Force. The sun represents the dark side. The daughter, the light side, and the father, the one in the middle, striving to create balance. While the son bites, Ahsoka turns her into something that looks evil and then kills her. And the daughter, sacrificing her special form, incarnation, to revive Ahsoka, a kind of Arwen giving up her immortality kind of move, if we're going to use a Lord of the Rings example, gives of herself and essentially revives Ahsoka, brings her back to life. And fans have been speculating, with good reason, that the daughter's touch has been on Ahsoka ever since. She is something transformed, something more. Well, later in the series, when she was unjustly framed by an enemy, and the Jedi Order did not back her, she lost her faith, not in the Force, but in the Jedi, When she was cleared of wrongdoing, she left the Jedi Order and went her own way as a nonpartisan Force user on the side of the light. That's why we don't see her in Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith. Her lightsabers, she often fights with two, are white. She got her own novel in 2016, aptly titled Ahsoka, telling the story of what happened after she left the Order, how she went into hiding after Order 66 wiped out the Jedi, and, she believed, killed her former master. She goes at this time by the name of Ashla. I've already mentioned that, the early, early term for the light side of the Force. And the novel then explains how she ended up working with Bail Organa and the Rebel Alliance. While she only appeared under a code name, Fulcrum, in the first season of Rebels, By the second season, it was time for grown-up Ahsoka to appear. Why was she a necessary addition to Star Wars Rebels? In io9's Ahsoka will be the Gandalf of Star Wars Rebels... We are told, quote, creator and executive producer Dave Filoni said that Ahsoka was not a new crew member, but, quote, she serves the story because you can't just bring Darth Vader into this crew because he'd kill them. They need a Gandalf, end quote. And Ahsoka is their Gandalf. Quote, she shows up when necessary. She's dealing with bigger, darker problems, said Filoni, end quote. So Gandalf from The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit Is the model for Ahsoka. In fact, in the second season of Rebels, Filoni gives her a line straight from Gandalf's mouth, word by word There are questions, questions which need answering. So Ahsoka here joins the series as Space Gandalf. In the finale for season two, episodes 21 and 22, March 30th, 2016, we have Twilight of the Apprentice. And this is the minds of Moria sequence, if we're going to put this in Tolkienian terms. The heroes go to the ruins of the Sith Temple on Malakor. And you can plot out the steps as Kanan, Ezra, and Ahsoka descend into the depths. And finally, Ahsoka stands alone before danger to give the wounded, permanently blinded Kanan and Ezra time to flee. It's her fly-you-fools moment, if we're going to put this in Gandalf terms. And who is her Balrog? Who is the one she's going up against and going to fight in order to give the others time to leave? Darth Vader. Now, there's a sidewise turn here, because you may recall uh, from Lord of the Rings, Eowyn's wonderful moment fighting on the battlefield, fighting the Witch-King of Engmar, whom no man can kill. Well, you have an Aowen moment, too, for Ahsoka, when she confronts her former master-turned-Darth Vader. Vader says that Anakin Skywalker was weak, and he destroyed him, so Ahsoka says that she will avenge Anakin's death. Vader says, revenge is not the Jedi way, and Ahsoka says, I'm no Jedi, in the same way that Aowen in Lord of the Rings says, I am no man. Well, What happens after the fight between Ahsoka and Darth Vader? We eventually see a badly battered, limping Vader leaving the planet alone. Then we see a glimpse of Ahsoka following stairs down, down into the heart of the planet Malachor, the old Sith temple. It looks like the mines of Moria, these huge stone structures around her as she moves deeper deeper into the dark. Now, there was a Star Wars Season 2 Q&A on March 30th, 2016, and Dave Viloni said, quote, if you really want to understand Ahsoka in this time period and what's happening to her, you could read Lord of the Rings. You've probably seen that, but you should read it. But, Get the book on letters that Tolkien wrote, where he explains in detail more the things that were really going on under the surface of his characters. I've used a lot of that extensively to inform what's happening to her, end quote. And he clarifies this even more. When asked about this, he specified letter 156, that is to Robert Murray on the 4th of November, 1954. In that letter, Tolkien describes Gandalf this way. Gandalf really died and was changed, for in his condition it was for him a sacrifice to perish on the bridge in defense of his companions, less perhaps than for a mortal man or hobbit, since he had a far greater inner power than they, but also more since it was a humbling and abnegation of himself in conformity to the rules. For all he could know at that moment, he was the only person who could direct the resistance to Sauron successfully. Aside here, for all Ahsoka Tano knew, she was the only person who could direct the resistance to Darth Vader successfully, because she had been trained by Anakin Skywalker. Okay, back to Tolkien. And all his mission was vain. He was handing over to the authority that ordained the rules and giving up personal hope of success. So Gandalf sacrificed himself, was accepted and enhanced and returned. Yes, that was the name. I was Gandalf. Of course, he remains similar in personality and idiosyncrasy, but both his wisdom and power are much greater. End quote. So what does that mean? Will we see Ahsoka Tano again? Will she be greater in wisdom and power? We don't know. But we have seen Dave Filoni wearing Ahsoka Lives shirts um, with question mark after Ahsoka Lives with an exclamation point after Ahsoka Lives. So we will have to wait and see. But I think it's clear that we wouldn't have had These aspects of Star Wars storytelling, these characters and the plot turns that come from these characters, the Bindu, Ahsoka Tano, without Tolkien's work first, serving as a kind of template. And with that, I drop the mic, or first, before I drop the mic, I say, I hope that you found my research of interest and my argument persuasive that there is, in fact, a Tolkienian influence on Star Wars and a strong, strong Tolkienian presence in current day Star Wars storytelling. I love Tolkien and I love Star Wars. So that for me is a win-win. And that for me is also the end of my super long uh, segment here, my presentation from The recent A Long Expected Party 4, I want to thank the organizers and attendees of A Long Expected Party 4 for inviting me to be a special scholar guest and for their wonderful comments and observations about the talk. I thank you so much for your time and attention, and I look forward to joining you again soon with something different as we look back into genre history. Thank you. There you go. <laughs> AIMS! It's on the telly, man! Come and watch it! Bring us me tea!
2: AIMS! Sorry, Amy. <laughs> Amy, thank you so much. That was just amazing. Honestly, man, thank you. <gasps> so that is sure, 506. By God, if you like it, support one, Patreon. Please, man, until next week. Just like to say, night from me.
0: This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about The District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I wanna talk to you. This signal's going light speed. By the time I get my say, I might already be on to you and on my way. But you're so far from here. I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call At home with nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my signal Getting through town on your